everybody. My name is Matt Pierce. I'm the Learning and Video Ambassador for TechSmith Corporation. So glad that you're here with us today watching or listening to our episode. We've got a great show today. We're going to be talking about the business of learning. So, you know, it's one thing to think about like, oh, we're making videos, we're making images, but all those things that we're doing have a purpose. And our guest today is going to help us to learn a little bit more about the business of learning, why that is so so important to understand, especially if you're not a business per if you're not a business person in terms of finance and other things. So let me go ahead and jump in and introduce our guest today. Ajay is a fellow of the Certified Professional Accountants and a Certified Training and Development Professional, or some of us know that as CTDP. Ajay, with his partner Teresa Kirkwood, published three books where they're recently titled The Trainer's Balance Scorecard, a complete resource for linking, learning, and growth to organizational strategy. Under his leadership, Training Magazine awarded Central Knowledge, their Technology in Action Learning Management Project of the Year for success with Apple. He's an award-winning writer, twice winning the prestigious trainingindustry.com Readership and Editor's Award. E-Learning Magazine recognized Ajay as their 2016 learning champion and thought leader. The World Training Development Congress named Ajay their 2017 Distinguished Trainer. He's also a leading expert contributor to e-learning industry.com and Ajay developed courses for LinkedIn learning and regularly guests on broadcast media and talk radio show discussing workforce performance issue and with that and so many other more things that he's done we want to welcome Ajay to our podcast today Ajay welcome thank you for being here with me today Oh, Matt, it's always a pleasure to be with you. And it's great to be with you here because usually we're at a conference chatting over a coffee or something. So happy to be here with you. Absolutely. Well, I almost threw in a bunch of heavy metal references, but I thought maybe maybe I would miss, you know, the audience wouldn't totally understand, you know, your, your love and appreciation. But, you know, obviously there's a lot of great things that we've been able to say about you already that you've done. But tell us a little bit more about yourself so our audience can get to know you a little bit. Um, professionally, I'm just a curious uh, individual. Um, I, I, I love business. I love finance. Uh, uh, as you said in my intro, I'm a, uh, I'm a certified professional accountant in Canada. And um, it's just a, the business side has always been a natural uh, attraction for me. So what I but also learning, the learning part was also something that I'm just a, I'm just a self I would say I'm a self-described learner. I love to learn. And, and you know, my wife, uh, who is a big admirer of YouTube, uh, you, Matt, um, she uh, says I have this wealth of useless knowledge in my head and I just love learning. So. I tried to parlay those two things in one area, and about 20 plus years ago, I decided to look at the business side of how we put knowledge in people's head and how it impacts the performance of organizations. And essentially, that's that's my my specialty is work you know workforce performance and how to connect that to you know business outcomes. And so, hopefully, I can share some small insights to that today with you. Yeah, so let's let's step back kind of high level because I'm guessing there's a lot of people who they hear some of these terms and they're all like they just kind of freak out like I don't know anything about what you're you're saying. But help us understand why is understanding business kind of some of those concepts of business and what even that means so fundamental for really for anyone that's in our organization but especially for learning professionals. Well, so let's start with the fundamental thing. The first thing that I want to share with people is that learning and knowledge within an organization is probably the top five preoccupations of your business leaders. So if you think you're not relevant in the organization, uh, I, you know, I want to share some news with you. You are very relevant in the organization and some of the biggest worry among your business leaders, number one. So let's go back to your question, Matt. Based on that fact, they want to know 
from any function that supports the business, they want to know how what you're going to do is going to contribute to improving the performance of the organization. Now, naturally, what we take away, uh, when I say we, the global we, the general we, uh, we take away in learning that that means we have to show some financial success. And that's not the case. And so you are the subject experts in learning, but you need to prove to the business leaders that your function is contributing to the business output in some fashion. And that applies to any support function. So I always like to say, and you've heard me say this before, Matt, you know, L&D is a business within a business to improve business results. And so we can't forget that our route, doesn't matter what technologies we use, what fancy videos we put on screen, what type of courses we develop, all of those things need to function and, and show value for the organization moving it forward into the objectives and direction it needs to go. No, I, you know, I, I, I love this because I think it's the reality is I've heard what you said before. People say, well, you know, they don't value what we do or we don't, you know, they're not seeing our the efforts that we're putting forth as a training department as something that is worthwhile. So I, I love that you brought it back to that that kind of notion, right? Like you're a business within a business, but you have to understand. And how much of this do you think is uh, maybe a training issue that like as learning development professionals or, you know, if I'm a technical writer, I don't understand the, biz, the business part of it because, you know, I didn't get a business degree. Or is yeah. it a language issue? Is it like a vocabulary, almost a vocabulary challenge? It's probably a little bit of both. Uh, so first, you know, I want people to understand you know, people, when I come across, and I, sometimes I come across quite brash, um, but it's more of the tough love in me that I want to make, I want to show L&D, I want to make sure L&D succeeds. And so with that, I come across in that sort of tough love aspect. But I, what comes across to people is that I, I expect them to be business slash financial experts. And that's in no means what I want them to be. Number one, you are a subject expert in L&D. So respect that. That's why you were hired. However, you need to have some literacy. So go back to your question, Matt. One is literacies. You need to understand the business function. You don't need to be an expert in it. You just need to know how the parts work together and, 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 and fit together because there are other experts in the organization to help you do that. There's the IT people, there's the finance people and so forth that you should partner with to get their subject expertise to help you build a better case. The second side of the equation is that that's the literacy, but the second side is the language. We... Uh, we tend to use terms sometimes that are either misleading or inappropriate with business leaders. And when I say inappropriate, I don't mean that they're bad. It's just it doesn't mean what you think it means to them. And so some of the examples in recent years that we've heard are things like return on investment or ROI or return on expectations, ROE. These type of things are great within, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say they're great, but within our context of our conversation within L&D, they mean one thing. But then when you share it with a formally educated business professional, like a, you know, a CEO or CEO or anybody in a business function, they have, they're ingrained with certain terminologies and they mean certain things that we will never change. And we need to respect that. So it's all about, you know, let me step back for a second, Matt. If you go to another country, right? I think we were just talking about your, your son who was in Mexico, right? You know, I'm sure he picked up some language skills to go to Mexico to be able to converse with the people there and try to use the right terms to make sure they understand him appropriately. Now, he may not be fluent, but he was able to get by probably. And it's the same thing for us. We need to, when we're going out of our boundaries in our L&D field, we need to go into that new country, which is the business side, and communicate in a way they understand, not what we want to try to make them understand. I don't know if you see the subtle difference, and that's, and that's really the big deal here. 
No, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And so I'm wondering, like, so, okay, that makes total sense to me. Like, you got to learn the language. They're using, make sure you're using the same words in the same way. I I mean, I just recently had a a conversation with uh, some individuals in another organization. It was, and it was it was refreshing that we used the same terminology uh, around some business terms. And it was great because it made sure that we were, we were able to, uh, you know, communicate yeah. clearly. So yeah. th- with that though, I'm wondering, like you, you mentioned there's other people in the organization there that can help you with that. So if I'm in this position and it feels like I'm already being an expert in my craft or my field of learning and development or technical writing or whatever it is I'm doing, how do I go about getting that, without become, trying to become an expert, you know, like, you know, is there a good way to go about getting that, not gaining that knowledge? So, you know, we, in L&D, just like any other support function are required to build certain initiatives, right? You know, and, and whether that be initiatives where the primary initiative is to build some sort of knowledge, you know, um, uh, delivery system, like, well, let's call it that, you know, where we get knowledge into people's head that they can apply it. Okay, so now we there's several ways we can do this, right? There's, there's a myriad of ways we can do this. We can do it, you know, a standard instructor-led training session to e-learning concepts to blend whatever it is that you want to come up with, you can come up with it. The point, the point with any way you're going to come up with it is that you need to know that first of all, it's a project or slash initiative that around it requires resources. And those resources that come into it need the expertise of those other people. So you know, and I know Matt. We we talk. You know, I you know I love. And I don't say this because I'm here with you. I, we love the TechSmith products. They're just fantastic. But there's no reason that for me to say because I love it that I have to go out and buy it. Is it going to serve a purpose? And am I buying the right product? You know that need that technology that's going to do what I need it to do. Maybe I don't know that. I need and now I need the expertise of the IT people to come in. So rather than sit in my cubicle and guess the type of technology I need, not just for what I need to develop, but if it fits in with the infrastructure, the environment, I'm going to bring in some of those IT experts into my conversation and say, hey, I need your advice here and guidance. Here's what I need to do and here's what I need to build, but how does that fit in within our ecosystem of our technology? And then the money, right? There's the, the money side of things. We always forget that companies have scarce monetary resources. I don't care who you are. Uh, if you're Apple with billions and billions of dollars in the bank, to that, to their scale, that's still a limited resource for them. So you have, they have to make choices that are going to add significant value to organization and allocate that money. So then when you're building this, you have to build a case that proves the fact that you're going to drive value and then for the money you're asking for. So bring in the finance people to talk to you about that. And so it's about total communication and working within being that cog in the wheel that's actually working with the other cogs in the wheels is what I'm trying to say. And I don't know if I'm going too deep or not deep enough. Please let me know, Matt. I mean, that's, no, no, I don't want to go is, too far into the weeds here. That's yeah, no, no. I think this is really great. And, and as, as you're saying these things, the things that I'm thinking about is like, okay, so I, I, I feel like one, you can't be on an Island. You're, you've got to start yeah. getting, talking to these other players and not just assuming that they're not assuming they're against you, but that they're going to want to work with you. But it also seems like going and taking some time to spend with those other groups and ask them the questions and be okay. It's, it's almost like you need to be okay saying that I don't know this. That yeah. I, I'm not an expert in this area. Please explain it to me. Because I feel like sometimes, and that's, I feel like that's hard to do for a lot of people uh, to say, like, I, I don't know what you mean when you say 
But should it be our role to do that? I mean, we're we're the ones promoting learning, right? I mean, learning implies that we don't know. I mean, that's the term learning means you're learning something you don't know. So why are we being so... I mean, I'm, I'm being generalistic now. I don't want to yeah, bundle everybody in the same bucket here. But in, in general, why are we so afraid to ask these questions when we're supposed to be learning as, you know, we're supposed to practice what we preach. You know, we're supposed to learn from the thing. And it's not just to the functions either, by the way. It's not just going to the, the IT or finance or uh, the admin or whatever to help you build this initiative. It's all, to your point, Matt, it's, it's also going to the department. Like, stop sitting in your cubicle or your office assuming that you know what the problem is and to solve. Maybe first, let's, Let's work with the obvious. Maybe it's not a training problem. It's just, it's a reflex from a manager that says, hey, they don't know this, so we're going to go to training and get them trained on it. Well, push back. You're the subject expert. Maybe you do your needs assessment and you realize, no, it's not a training problem. It's an operational issue. And push back. Don't be afraid to do that. That's where your value lies. Or if it is a training problem, don't assume that because Matt doesn't know this topic that we've got to train Matt in this topic and he can become better. Maybe it's a lot deeper than that. That's what your needs assessment. Become their therapist. Sit down and learn about their business. I mean, no, seriously, I, I, you, you laugh, Matt, but I say that now more and more. It's like you have to become that department's therapist. And what I want people to, and this is where I get a little passionate, so my apologies in advance to the audience. But, <laughs> you know, when you buy a product, okay, let's I'm work on an analogy. I love analogies and I love acronyms. So you buy a product. It doesn't work out the way you thought it would work out. So you go back to the store and you get your money back, right? So because it's, you feel that, you know, it's not, it didn't work out the way you want, so it not, doesn't have any value to you. Well, guess what? Those people wanting that training from you that asked for those initiatives that you helped develop to solve whatever problem they had, if they're not satisfied, guess what? They're the ones who are paying for it. Their money, your budget is coming from their budget. You're, they're paying for this. And they don't, they don't do this, but they have every right to go back up to you and say, it didn't work. Fix it. Because your solution did right. not work because you didn't talk to us. You didn't dig deep enough. So... This is where that tough love comes out. I want them to be successful, but don't be afraid to get out of the cubicle. I, I listen, man. I use this quick example. Uh, a CEO, sorry, a CEO called me once from a major company here in in, in, in Montreal. I'm in Ottawa, but in Montreal, and he said to me, "You, you gotta, you gotta talk to the tra- training and development department. They just don't get it. Get what's going on here." So, okay, walked in. I said, "Let's go on a field trip." I set up meetings with different departments that they had to work with between our support, like the finance and IT and all this, and also the departments that they were helping certain initiatives. I said, we're going to sit there, we're going to shut our mouths, and we're just going to ask them questions. And they're going to, we're just going to be that therapist, right? You know, think about sitting on the couch and listening to the patient. That's what you, you're going to listen to the patient. And, you know, that's what you, we have to do more of. And that's our expertise. We need to learn. And then once we learn and get to the root cause, we can build more substantial value for the organization. And guess what? Your star is going to rise so fast if you if you just do those small things. No, that makes that makes so much sense. You know, as we as we were preparing for this conversation, one thing that you said that really stood out to me that I thought I thought was really interesting, and I'd love to hear more of your thoughts. Is and I want to I wrote it down, so I'm going to look at it here real quick. It said, uh, "Leaders don't want to say no, but they want justification for why they can say yes." And I thought that was such an interesting notion because I think it's so easy to get caught up in this kind of viewpoint of the rest of the org. And and this is for any role, I think like, well, Mm -hmm. they don't want us to have it or they don't think we need it. Uh, You know, and it's, I thought it was interesting that your perspective was, it's not that it's not anything about how they 
feel about it. It's not that they're against it. It's that they have a very, uh, someone that's running, dealing with the money, yep. the finances is saying, I need a good reason for t- to say yes. You have to convince me that this is actually going to be financially responsible, not just you're doing it on a whim, which I'm sure I have probably have done, made that mistake before. <laughs> Look, I'm not saying business leaders are not, you know, perfect. I mean, but yeah. at the end of the day, they're running the show and, and they have uh, some key objectives to adhere to. Um, and whether it be a major public organization or a small organization, it doesn't matter. These business leaders in those positions have some objectives and pressure points and performance expectations. So they need to solve this problem. So going back that they don't want to say no is a, is a key thing here. They really don't want to say no, but they're going to say no to things that they believe is not going to add any value because they have, they have limited resources, people, time, and money. Those are the key resources that we talk about in, in finance world. And so there's a give and take between these resources. And if you can't show how that's going to you know, help them use those resources to make them better, that's an issue. Now, that I always tell people that when business leaders come across negative, you can't just accept for what, what they say. I know this is a strange thing I'm about to say here, but no doesn't really mean no. I know that comes across terrible in this the we movement or whatever, but no, in this case, no doesn't really mean no. It means give me more. Tell me why. Show me how. You know, it, no is like, is the first step to say to you, you need to read between the lines. Like, well, why, why are they saying no? And get into the, and they never really say no. They say, they'll say questions like this. They'll say, you know, I don't see where you're going with this, or I'm not sure where I see the value, or I, you know, I, you know, why should we spend the money in this area? All those kind of negative questions that we take as really negative as them being pushing back and saying, we don't want training. It's not really them saying no to training. It's more like, yes, we do, but please prove it to me. You know, please talk to me in a language I understand. Please show me that you're going to solve my pain issues, right? And that's really what they're trying to say. That's where the yes is buried in there. And, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, I don't know how to look at this. I always say fortunately, unfortunately, but I get to work with a lot of leading progressive thinking, I should say, organizations. And maybe that makes me a little soft because I walk in there and I say, you know, a lot of times I said, you don't need me. You're doing things right. No, no, we need to do more of the right. And I say, well, it's the ones that are not doing the right things that need me. That's where I should be, right? But right. they don't recognize it. So I get I get the chance to work with a like-minded set of people that realize that you, you mentioned Apple. I mean, I had a great time working with Apple because their thought is to invest a significant amount of money in learning. However, let's let's be clear here. They just don't drop a bunch of money in the training department and say, build stuff and deploy it. They're, they're, they're like, and again, I hate to use this analogy in the, in the context of our world today, but they're rather than a shotgun approach, they use a very sniper approach. Mm-hmm. They're very targeted and precise on their learning. And you see that, and they're not perfect, but you see that with AppleCare. I've never really seen anybody really complain about dealing with AppleCare. I've seen people complain about Dell support, Microsoft support, but when it came to Apple, there are complaints. Nobody's perfect. But even when I interact, I have an Apple MacBook, 10 years old. I called them a few months ago. They helped me for two, three hours on the phone. They fix it. I had to remind the guy on the other phone. I said, you know, it's 10 years old. He goes, yeah, no worries. We'll fix it. <laughs> like, yeah. But that speaks to the culture. That speaks to the knowledge. And when he didn't know something, he would have gone out to learn it. That means they have their learning infrastructure behind the scenes to do it. 
So what I'm trying to say here, you can see that learning is not that shining object on a hill that has to be recognized. It is something that is embedded in the culture within the environment that is invisible. It's something that they take for granted, but it's always there. And so that's the value learning has to provide within the business. Yeah. You know, this is, I mean, this is awesome because what it's making me think about is so as TechSmith, we talk a lot about using images, videos and things like that. And I was thinking like, well, you know, where does that tie into this? And I, and I know, you know, I know you do videos and we, before we end today, I want to talk about your experience with LinkedIn learning, but the, the interesting thing is I, I do get people coming to me occasionally and asking the question, you know, hey, Matt, how do we how do we implement video? Like, you know, it's, it, you know, we got to no one really wants they're saying we don't really need it. And I'm thinking the things that you just said are a great answer. Like you have to show why video is going to be valuable. And I think it's all there. Like all the pieces are there to help someone show why why video can help solve certain problems. It's not going to solve every problem, but it's going to solve certain, you can definitely use it in a lot of situations to solve certain situations. And same with images, right? Like, uh, and I I don't mean to monologue here because you're my guest, but I'm thinking about, we have a a study about the value of visuals and the researchers that we work with set it up. So you could see actually productivity improvements if people were to start using visuals in their everyday communications, like their emails, right? And And it worked out to be something like, kind of what seems ridiculous is like six or seven minutes a day. But when you look at that across an organization of 500 people at six or seven minutes a day, mm-hmm. or you look at across the, the GDP of an, a, a, a nation and we, we, they did this analysis, it becomes billions of dollars and billions of hours saved, which is, which is in, incredible. I, I think the one stat with 500, a company of 500 employees, it was something like the equivalent of seven full-time employees time in a year. So, so yeah, I'm just, what you've said has been fantastic about like, you know, get to the, get to that. What's the proof? What, what is it going to do? How's it going to solve the problem? How's it going to actually help us make money, save money, or, you know, do whatever it is that we need the organization to do. So this is Matt, you you, you just said it, right? I mean, you just did something that a leader, a business, and I say business leaders, and we always think about CEOs and CFOs, but I'm talking about operational directors and stuff. Like you say that kind of explanation the way you just said it, right? And make it more like, I wouldn't go, and the GDP is a great example, but I don't know if I'd go there with them. But, you know, you speak to within the department, right? You say, okay, you have a department of, you know, say a production staff of 100 people. And let's say we, we did sort of something visual and you that's your subject expertise as an L&D person say, well, okay, I can deploy something because it's something of a visual aspect and here's the amount of time that's going to save. That's that time part that turn translate into money or efficiencies or savings, right? It's not always about profitability. Profitability is the end result, but there's a lot of elements. And I'm speaking as an accountant here, but there's a lot of elements to arrive at profitability that you need to look at. So things like your example say, you know, if we save even 30 seconds of time from each of these aspects, it's fine. I use there's one example is number. This is going back a number of years, by the way. Speaking of visual, um, this is before I knew TechSmith, so this is going back maybe 10, 15 years. There was a utility company I was working with. They kept calling me and they said, "Look, we have people going up the telephone pole, right, and fixing something up there. They're not the full subject expert. They have to come back down the pole. They have to go to the truck, look up a book, call somebody, whatever. And it takes like weeks. And they're having brownouts or blackouts in certain areas, and, and they and the fixes were taking long. They said. We believe our learning and development team can do something, but we need you to work with them. So what we did is like, this is back in the day when, you know, the technology we take for granted today wasn't really, it was starting, but it wasn't really there. And I said, look, why don't we, you know, iPads started coming out or tablets started coming out. And so I said, look, why don't we start 
creating this resource library online, just a very simple thing. You have all the documentation. So rather than come down to Cherry Picker to go back to the truck, they have it with them. And maybe we can connect them to some intranet satellite system where they can connect directly with subject experts in the help desk. Well, talk about a visual, you know, the t- live tutorials of how to fix something, a transformer, whatever it was, the live tutorials that they're able to see, the, the, the dissection of parts that they could blow out into this video, and they can see exactly how to fix it, or the visual of how to call in somebody to talk to them to be able to fix it on the spot. I swear, they were getting, not only did they save like something like 30% or 40% of time savings on the repair service of the, the poles or transformers, they actually uh, reduce costs and people going out on these calls to fix things. And they also um, saw a big uptick in satisfaction from customers in the neighborhood, saying, getting a lot of compliments back um, that things were getting better. So, you know, all this stuff speaks to the reputation and the, the profitability of the company. But just that little thing, and we talked about visuals, that little thing just changed the world. I'm not saying I helped them solve their problem, but it was just thinking in a way that helped improve business value for the organization. So it's, 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 it, to me, it's that simple and it's also that challenging. You know, you, you, that's where you need to partner up with people and start talking to people and, and stop assuming that you know the answers. That's a really important thing here. One thing interesting in that, that, that story is that the impact on customers, right? The, and I'm guessing it's more of a feeling of goodwill, um, yeah. which is it's a hard thing to, for, for anyone to measure, really, to say, like, well, how valuable is that? So how, what was you, as, as purely from a business person's perspective, like, how do I help someone in my leadership or organization understand the non-tangible aspects? Because it's one thing to say, like, I can tie this to revenue. That's usually pretty clear. I can tie this to productivity. We see this increase. But something like that where it's, you know, I'm thinking maybe outside of learning and development, perhaps maybe it's company employee morale that they feel more satisfied with their job or they feel less whatever angst that they feel doing their job. So what are the thoughts around that? So I don't know if you allow me a shameless plug. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, You you get one. (laughs) (laughs) So this, right. You talked about this, right. Uh, The last book, the trainer's balance scorecard. Um, this book, and I'm very proud of it because it speaks to uh, the performance management framework within organizations. And to your point, Matt, a lot of these um, metrics, the key performance metrics, the KPIs we talked about that business leaders look at, more and more business leaders are not looking at the, there was a time when they would look just at the financials, you know, 30, 40, 50 years back, or focus more on the financials. But today, competition is so fierce. Um, and it's not just about the financials. They look at what they call leading indicators. And a lot of these leading indicators, these, a lot of these key performance leading indicators are what we call non-tangible, very soft, um, things like the goodwill, uh, customer satisfaction, all this kind of stuff is very hard to measure. But they can make some sort of causal correlation to the output based on how well they're leading in these metrics. And now you see this a lot in organization. You see these, let's work with some goodwill. Like I'm a big fan of Starbucks. Okay. I'm not, I don't have any shares in Starbucks. Actually, I do have shares in Starbucks. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Full disclosure. I love Starbucks to death. I, you know, uh, and I know some people don't, but hey, but you got to admit to me, I'm, I'm blown away. Here's a leading indicator. We talk about the softer performance metrics. I, people take Starbucks for granted. I never do. No matter where I go in the world and I walk into a Starbucks, am I frozen? There we go. I, I walk into a Starbucks, right? Each time I, and I'm just a plain, you know, 
cream and my coffee kind of guy, and that's it. But when I see somebody, and I know they can go, go anywhere in the world and order whatever's on the menu and then customize it even further, and it comes out pretty much consistent anywhere in the world, just like McDonald's does with their burgers, you have to be impressed of what support, learning support system go on behind it. Because while McDonald's is a very, uh, you know, mechanistic, mechanistic kind of process, uh, took the supply chain kind of thing into, into food, Starbucks did the same thing, but you got to think about the skill set we have to put into a barista's head, that person behind there, to be able to make those coffees. Because there's, while it is somewhat mechanical, there is somewhat of an art to it as well. And so for Starbucks to be able to transfer that in, from a learning perspective into the head of that, that, that barista, to be able to deliver you the coffee and make me happy every single time, whether I'm in Dallas, whether I'm in Montreal, whether I'm in Paris, that coffee is the same every single time blows my mind because that leading metric drives Starbucks success. That knowledge, that satisfaction, all that, those soft goodwill stuff that you're talking about, while there is no direct, direct, tangible correlation back, they know the more that they do this, the better they become and the more money they make. So there, you will never find, and I hate when L&D people say to me, give me that, you know, give me the magic beans and I'll grow in and give me, you know, whatever. Give me that that solution, that magic pill or plug in the matrix. No, it doesn't work that way. You you just have to move in the right direction, right things that help people become better. And when, when that engagement happens, like in Starbucks example, or in Toyota's quality, Toyota's famous for their quality metrics, right? We all know Toyota. I mean, I'm not a fan of Toyota cars. I'm, I'm not, I think they're great cars, by the way, so I don't want to slight anybody here, but I think they're boring as heck. I mean, I'm a car guy, so I like exciting cars, but I, I won't fault them for this. You know, first thing when you think about quality in cars, the first name that comes to mind is Toyota, nobody else, right? Everything, yeah. everybody, it's a distant second. But that speaks that they have what they call a lean learning methodology that, Matt, you probably heard me speak about. I never invented it, but they, it's lean manufacturing, but they don't talk about the learning that takes place embedded in that lean process. And that's what keeps them that Kaizen, that continuous improvement process, that learning. So all those intangible performance metrics that we talk about are leading metrics. And people know, the leaders know that if we do right by those metrics, the results will fulfill themselves, the financial results. And I know I didn't answer you concretely here. And no. I'll be able to, but. That's, it's, no, it's, it's really great. Because I think the, the thing that you, that you said, that, and I just to sum this up, is that it matters, right? Those intangible yeah. matters. We have to be able to understand, start to understand what they are. It sounds like, and and help our business leaders understand why those are valuable. Whether it's employee morale or if they don't understand that already. But so I, I, I definitely see that as a as. So can I cool. add to that though? But because it's so, Matt, how would you feel if you were when you were in school, and the teacher gave you the answers before a test? What would you say? I'd be like, yes, this is great. Yes. But you didn't exactly know what the questions were going to be. Mm, There's okay. a challenge, now, right? But it doesn't matter. You still know the answers, right? So it's a bit of a reverse here. We, we in the performance framework, every organization, a good organization has a performance framework. And it's not run by us. It's run by the business leaders. In that performance framework, it's, it's brought, and I, I don't want to go too far into weeds here, but it's brought down into a very granular level to each department, to each function. And in these performance matrix, what we call cascading, and you can read it in my book, but you know, pick up things by Kaplan and Norton about the balance scorecard and stuff like that. You can read all about it. And I write about it in all my articles. But each of these, met, these key performance indicators are tied into the overall objective of the organization, which is the mission. Now, you trace this 
these are the pain points. These are the answers to the test. The metrics are there. If you go to an operational director, let's say I'm going to use a very simple example. Let's go, you go to, um, I don't know, let's go to a manufacturing, right? And they have uh, one of the things is, uh, you know, a, a defect metric, right? To reduce defects or manufacturing defects. And right now they're hovering around 10%. And, and that's the goal to maintain it at 10%. Now, let's say you walk into the operational manager and say, hey, can I sit down with you? You have a 10% performance indicator here for uh, to reduce, not maximize past 10% as defects. Okay. What if we can help you as learning development to help your people be better than 10%? So maybe 9% or 8%. What does that mean to you? Will you allow us to work with you and your team to find out how they can become better in reducing those defects? And what does that mean to you? Well, you know, if the defects get reduced by 1%, it translates to X number of dollars in the, in the, in the production, the efficiencies. Okay, if it does, if the defects, you know, we don't get any defects coming back, it reduces our time to redo, you know, redo and all this kind of stuff. And there's another dollar figure attached to that. It just, it just flows in cascades. And then eventually, if we reduce the defects, we have less people complaining about it. So customer service is not bombarded with calls from our clients. Mm-hmm. It goes on and on. So, but if I just do that one thing, it dominoes into other performance metrics. And now I solve the pain point. And I look like a hero because I moved a needle by half a percent or 1%. And if I do better now, I mean, it's, it's, to me, the answers are lying in front of us. And I'm not a genius by no means. And I don't kick in and agree with me, Matt, please. I'm not smarter than anybody else. I swear to God, I'm not. And the answers are in front of you. And if you just go out and do the right things, you, my goodness, you'd be a hero. I mean, literally, you'd be you'd be put on a pedestal if you just did right. that. I mean, so anyways, I'm, I'm on a rant. With that said, let's talk about LinkedIn Learning. I mean, so uh, if you have never seen LinkedIn Learning, Ajay, what, how would you describe it generally for people? What is LinkedIn Learning? Well, the uh, general term that we use in the business is MOOC, right? M-O-O-C, Massive mm-hmm. Open Online Courses. And so basically, it's a formerly the Linda com thing people may recognize it but linkedin learning linkedin bought it and uh, it is basically a huge warehouse and library of a vast amount of knowledge of from really leading and interesting people and so uh, i get the privilege of being one of those people i i, I sort, of, sort of pinch myself every so often to believe that i'm in that group but there's a lot of great resources for people to learn there um, and i have a Great library courses around the L&D side, so around the getting internal buy-in for e-learning. Uh, we talked about you know developing practical success metrics for your learning and development. That's a short one, actually. It's got a lot of good feedback. It's a good 40 minutes. So if you have a subscription to LinkedIn Learning or can get a subscription, that's a good short one to, to get into. Um, and I got a few others in there, and our most popular, actually, the killer, the one that I started with was a train-to-trainer course, which people, for some, for whatever reason, are, are just has gone gangbusters for the last three years, and so very proud it but now they've moved me into uh, the accounting side so i'm doing a lot of accounting course development uh, and um, a few of my courses are coming out soon one on cost estimating one on uh, accounting ethics and uh, one on accounting interviews how to handle accounting interviews but i'm a bit of a unicorn or an anomaly i think i mentioned that to you i, I have a learning and development background and i have an accounting background so they say wow we can't find that it's like you know I don't know if it makes me special or weird. I don't know, something like that. <laughs> Maybe but a little it, both, right? <laughs> so so, so, uh, so, it's got me into a very unique position with them, but uh, I enjoy, I think it's a great resource. It's not perfect. Well, I'm never going to promote anything to perfect, but it's a great resource to have. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I know uh, one thing just to note for people, if they're, they don't have LinkedIn learning, check your library, local library. I know ours actually had subscriptions that you could, you could use to get access to the content. But the thing I'm curious about is I think from a video creations perspective, and, and they obviously have a business they're running. They're thinking about all those things we just talked about in terms of value and propositions and why do we solve this problem versus that problem. But I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience of what it's like to create a course, um, because obviously they're doing high quality work. They're doing something that, you know, you could look at and say like, that's, you know, some of the best kind of content out there from a just production value. And, and obviously they got lots of tools, resources, they put a lot of time into it, but like, what's, are you, are you like writing scripts? Are you just, are, you know, like, I yeah. guess I'm curious what that process looks like for you to create these videos. It, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. And, and, and like you said, I get surrounded by high quality professionals that I would never have access to. I mean, so that, before I get into the professionals, so basically, you know, the course gets signed and, and I have to pitch the course and, and then I have the hiring editor who pitches it to their team and feels that there's a market need for it. And of course they have, they know what their needs are in the market because they go out to their clients and they say, look, what can you use? And, and so forth. So, and, and if they have a certain, you know, barn of, you know, cattle of people with experts like myself, they'll say, you know, like the accounting ethics one, they came to me and says, Hey, Ajay, you know, can you do an accounting ethics course? I said, yeah, I teach that stuff. So yeah, that's not a problem. So we need an accounting ethics course. So that gets signed off. It gets handed off to a producer and the producer and I work together to author the scripts. Now I author the scripts, but then I get this wonderful producer talking about an expert who helps me, you know, really, um, tighten up these scripts and, and make them very professional. And, and although I think I'm a good writer and I do, as you know, Matt, I write a lot of articles and, I, and when it comes to script writing, there's, there's somewhat of an art to this and that, that conversational aspect. And they do a wonderful job working with you on that. And then you get used to it. And I've created, talk about learning. I've learned to write differently in the last three years I've been working with LinkedIn. So it's really kind of cool. Then once that's done and formalized and signed off, it gets handed off. They get put a team together. They put a sound uh, person. They put a, you know, teleprompter people up. They put uh, and a director and the director is cool because they got a lot of, you know, because they're in California, they get a lot of people who are worked on Hollywood TV shows, right. Or stuff or you know, worked in some form. So you're working, people say, well, you know, I worked on this game show or this reality show or whatever. And I'm like, Whoa, dude, I'm working with you. You know, I mean, they're not the AAA list, like, you know, they're not the Spielbergs here, but still you're getting really high quality individuals that are fun. And then of course, once it's banked, you know, then it's shipped off to their editing team and, they put it all together so the, the visuals are perfect. The uh, quality of additional text and graphics put in to complement are, are there. Um, and that's basically it. I mean, it sounds simple, yeah. but I'm, you know, it takes, a, it takes a village to build a course, basically. So, well, I'm curious. But the, visual, the visuals are fantastic, though. The visuals are fantastic. And it speaks to people going like with Camtasia or anything like this to, to build a course. You really need to, you know, you've got great tools. So use the great tools to make great videos, and, and that'll be more compelling. Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious. You mentioned that you've learned to write differently, which I think is is, is fascinating because I, I think script writing we've seen, as we've talked about it here on the podcast before in other places uh, in our TechSmith Academy, uh, you know, it's a very it's very popular because I think people struggle with script writing. So I'm curious, if, is there one thing that you can identify that you've you've actively changed about your process? Because I know you do other videos. I know you do videos on your own. You're doing stuff not just for them, but you're you're making your own content. So what, what is it that changed about the way you write scripts? So, you know, in school, we were always taught by our English teacher to 
you know, this is the way you write, that formal mm-hmm. writing. You don't use contractions. You don't use, you know, you don't use slang. You use, you know, full terms, all this kind of stuff, right? And you don't end with a proposition and all this, you know, when to use the semicolon in a period. Well, basically, that get, I mean, I love good writing, but that gets thrown out the window with them. But literally, it just goes, I mean, literally. The whole, those rule sets just get put aside. And they say, write the way you're talking to me. Like right now, if I'm talking to you like this, hopefully there's some transcription service that can just take the text and put it into a script format, and that's the script, basically. So you write that way, where you bring in constructions, you speak as if you're talking in a conversation. And to me, that's been so refreshing because I'm trying to push my articles in that direction. I, in my recent e-learning industry articles in the last year, I've been very focused on more conversational approach, as if I'm talking to you as a friend. Um, and I think that's so refreshing that we don't have to follow the rules. And I'm not saying it's bad grammar or bad writing, but let's be honest, Matt, there's actually times you're going to hear me say in this course is things like gonna, instead of going to, gonna, G-O-N-N-A. And they encourage that. I'm like, or, you know, to, to that, that type of inflection. And I, I, I think that's really cool. And I think that really brings a, uh, a closeness. Like even if we're at a distance and I'm on a screen mm-hmm. and you're watching me, it brings an informality between you and me, even though we're not together, that you can relate. And so I think that's really neat. That's the one change I think that really improved my writing over time. Well, I love this because here's the thing. I, and I kid you not, I was in grad school and I was taking a course about technical writing. You know, I was getting my master's degree in instructional systems technology. And the professor gave me feedback that said, you write like you talk. And, it, you know, I was doing all the things I was doing wrong. <laughs> and it's actually, I think it's one thing that's really worked out well for me because we have the same philosophy around our videos, right? Like it should be natural language versus formal language. And there's, yeah. I want to be clear for anyone listening that there, there's time to have formal language. There are times when you want to project that formality, but I love that, that that's the thing that, cause I could see that, you know, like you're probably going to be all, everything's going to be in this right place. And it's going to be, you don't want it to sound crass. You don't want to sound like you want it to be very professional, which is not bad, but when it comes across on camera, very formal can feel stiff. It can feel unfriendly. It can, you know, and so I, I love that that's your takeaway from, from that. Writing. And the director encourages that, right? Even, even when we're live recording, the director even says, okay, no, no, let's stop there. Let's, you know, it tells the producer, let's recraft that paragraph because it's not, Flowing properly is make it a little more conversational. And he'll say to me, or she'll say to me, like, we're in a living room together, just talk. I'm the camera, but you're talking to me like we're your friends. And and it's 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 really neat. It, it takes that fear away. And of course, you can imagine in a LinkedIn studio. I don't know if you've seen them, but they're they're almost like holly quasi Hollywood studios. They're big rooms, black with big spotlights and a lot of cameras and stuff. And so it's a little intimidating walking there, but they really make you feel at ease. So. And speaking, if you allow me, Matt, very quickly, talking about English. In high school, I had an English teacher, speaking of writing, uh, and I would write basically crappy book reports. And she says, boy, you please, she even said to me, I remember this vividly, and I wish I could find her today because I want to show her the three books I've written and all the articles I write, just out of spite. <laughs> um, but she says, you would never be able to write, and you shouldn't write. And I'm like, okay, geez, that's really encouraging from a teacher. Um, and then I had another English teacher in, in university uh, who said to me, stop using all these uh, adjectives or, you know, these uh, adverbs and stuff like this. Like, you know, don't say things like very, just drop the very and all this kind of stuff. And all LinkedIn is telling me, no, 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 do, do it the way you talk, right? Just put, you know, say, you get excited and say, yeah, I'm very successful, you know, whatever, this type of stuff. Um, so, you know, 
put whatever negativity somebody told you in the past aside and do what you think is right, period. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speak to your audience, right? Speak to speak to your audience the way they they speak. Speak to them the way they want to be spoken to. I think is is great advice. By the way, there was one session you did on ATDTK. Uh, I think uh, I think you did it, or you may have done it. Um, you, people hate their own voice. That's another one. Yep. And uh, uh, everybody hates their own voice. I love the fact that you're getting people to acknowledge it. Everybody hates their own voice. Um, and I noticed leading voiceover expert in Canada. He does broadcast media. I mean, he does a lot of voiceover. And I had him coach me a few years back. And I said, Dave, I said, I said, I hate my voice. He goes, dude, he goes, I hate my voice. I said, my God, Dave, you got the best voice on TV. He goes, the news comes on, I see your voiceover. You do a Subaru commercial, I hear your voiceover. Your voice is awesome. He goes, I hate my voice. Yeah. So the leading, one of the leading voiceover experts in Canada <laughs> hates his own voice, but he says, no, it, it bring, you know. Everybody hates their voice. And uh, he said that to me. And so thank you for sharing that, Matt. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. We have a term for it now. I actually found the research that's been done about this. It's called voice confrontation. Really? It's, it's, and, and if you're bilingual, because you, you're bilingual, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're more likely to hate your voice and have that voice confrontation. Really? Like 63%, and I don't, I'm probably misquoting the stat, but it's like 63% of bilingual speakers have more voice confrontation than uh, uh, like a single language speaker. Really? Well, okay. okay. So I, there, I'm, I'm, getting used, I'm getting used to accepting my voice now all this time since I'm before camera and doing these podcasts and webcasts. So I, I yeah. don't have a choice. So, anyway. <laughs> well, Ajay, thank you so much for all the great wisdom and knowledge that you've shared with us. I know I've got, I've, it's very timely because I actually had a meeting with my the vice president today and we were talking about some of these things. And I was thinking, man, I got to figure out how to, to tie these things together. And you've helped me think through some of the things. So this has been timely for me. If everyone else doesn't like it, well, I apologize. But uh, so much great wisdom. And obviously we're, we're so appreciative for all that you do. So thank you again for coming on the Visual Lounge. Matt, thank you for having me. And I extend this to you. not only you, you know, you can all, we're friends and I know you can always, we always chat all the time. So you always reach out to me if you want to bend an ear. But my my Twitter handle is there and I encourage people to follow me because I use that as a learning tool. And I broadcast a lot of my articles and a lot of articles I'm interested in reading. I don't get into the fights or spats with it. Um, so join me on that. And if you have any questions, please reach out. I'd be happy. I don't have all the answers, but I'd be happy to have a conversation with you. So. Yeah, absolutely. And just I'll leave you with this final comment, Ajay, that Stephen from Facebook said this was a great interview. So well done. Wow. Yeah. So thank we'll, you. We'll, we'll leave on that note. But everybody, thank you so much. Go check out Ajay's stuff. Like he's got books, he's got articles, he's easy to find wherever you might be on the internet. Uh, with that said, though, thank you everybody again for tuning in. Thank you for listening to podcasts. If you have a moment and you're so inclined, we'd love to have you go out to your favorite podcast platform and just give us a rating and review. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Give us feedback. You can always email us at thevisuallounge at techsmith.com. Thanks everybody for, we hope you have another great week and you're successful whatever you're doing in leveling up your skills. Until next time.